0: Welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. This is Philip Lance, your host for today. Today I'm interviewing Dr. Mark Solms about his book, The Feeling Brain Selected Papers in Neuropsychoanalysis, published by Karnak in 2015. Dr. Solms is the chair of neuropsychology at the University of Cape Town and is well known for his integration of psychoanalytic theories with those of modern neuroscience. He has far too many awards and honors for me to mention here, so I'll just mention that he's published more than 250 articles and five books. His second book, The Neuropsychology of Dreams, in 1997, was a real landmark contribution to the understanding of dreams. And together with Oliver Turnbull, he published The Brain and the Inner World in 2002, which is a bestseller and has been translated into 12 languages. Most intriguing to me is that he's the authorized editor and translator of the forthcoming revised standard edition of the complete psychological works of Sigmund Freud. So we'll have to ask him about that if we get time. Welcome to the program, Dr. Solms. Thank you. So you have several books under your belt already. What led you to put together this particular book?
1: Um, As it happens, uh, the impetus for this book came not from me myself, but rather from Jim Rose, who's the editor of the Psychoanalytic Ideas series, um, which is published um, for the Institute of Psychoanalysis in London by Carnac Books. And uh, I don't know how many books there are in that series. I don't think it's been going for very long. But he uh, wrote to me and asked if I would contribute a a, a volume to that series on the topic of neuropsychoanalysis. Um, And he made clear that the the normal format of those books is a um, a, a, a sort of collation of a series of existing papers. So I thought that was a great opportunity to... um, publish a selection of what I've written in this field over the last few decades, um, mainly with the aim in mind of trying to produce a good introductory survey of the field. Um, Nothing uh, like that exists. And so what I did was select not uh, by any means um, what I think are the most important papers or even my favorite papers, but rather, um, firstly, those which were most accessible, um, those that didn't require a specialist interest or or training, um, especially in the neurosciences. And secondly, those that would give a kind of cross-section of what I've been doing in that field, because I have worked in several rather disparate aspects of um, what's come to be known as neuropsychoanalysis, and I wanted to have a sort of representative sampling of, of those disparate aspects. So that that's what this book, what the impetus was and, and uh, you know, and also more or less what gave rise to the structure of it, the contents of it.
0: I found it to be an excellent introduction um, to the field of neuropsychoanalysis. And I liked that it was relatively short, I think a little less than 200 pages, which kind of made it manageable. Um, Reading the book really made an impact on me. It it clarified intellectual issues, but more than anything else, it really benefited my work with my patients. For instance, I I heard in in my patients telling dreams I was able to hear things that wouldn't have been stand out for me otherwise, and it led to some very rich conversations. So I've obviously become a fan of neuropsychoanalysis, but I know that not all psychoanalysts are. And uh, what is that about?
1: Um, well, let me start by saying that, um, happily, the resistance to neuropsychoanalysis has waned over the over the years. When I first began, um, let me remind you, my first publication in this field, uh, which was not yet called neuropsychoanalysis, but my first publication, which attempted to integrate the two perspectives, was 1986, which is a long time ago. Um, And I first started um, seriously trying to persuade psychoanalytic colleagues um, of the value of this approach uh, in the early 1990s when I participated in and eventually convened a monthly series of lectures uh, at the New York Psychoanalytic Society. And those days, uh, there really was much more resistance than, and incomprehension, uh, than anything else, and mistrust. I think that the the widespread view was that I can't possibly be a proper psychoanalyst if I don't realise, you know, that uh, psychoanalysis is was established in and always should remain in contradistinction to organic approaches to the mind. Um, so that that uh, resistance has substantially uh, reduced over the years. There are still um, sort of enclaves of strong resistance. I think perhaps the resistance still remains strongest um, in Britain, ironically, which is where I train, um, and uh, in France. But in the United States um, and in Germany, well, actually Germany, Austria, the Netherlands, sort of Northern Europe and Italy, Southern Europe too, there's there's really a lot of interest in Latin America in recent years also so um but your question was not is it improving that that's my own need to point out that the resistance is diminishing your question really was what is it all about and i think it's about a great variety of things i mean on the one hand uh, it comes from a misreading of statements that freud made to the effect that we must remain aloof of neurological um, explanations Um, which Freud did say repeatedly. But uh, all you need to do is read on, you know, the next sentence. And he points out why he's saying this, which is that at that point in time, uh, we didn't have uh, tools to be able to study these um, complicated mental processes uh, neuroscientifically. Freud himself had tried in his famous project. And uh, he had discovered in the attempt that uh, you have to fall back on speculation Uh, if you're going to do this. But that was decades and decades ago. So Freud said we must remain aloof of neurological methods for the present. And then he goes on to say that someday it not only will be possible, but must be done that we uh, find a way of reuniting these two disciplines. And there's just no question in my mind that that time has now come. We now have the tools That Freud not only anticipated we would one day have, but which he sorely missed. You know, I think he really looked forward to the day when we would be able to do this sort of thing. So the point is that many readers of Freud. Think that, uh, you get the impression that this was an, a sort of a matter of an injunction of principle on Freud's part, and they they take that on board, misunderstanding that it was really a strategy to be applied in the early decades of the 20th century, but to be discarded as soon as possible once things improve on the neuroscience side. So I think that's part of it. I think that there was a reductionistic um, un- and unfortunately unpsychological approach um, that developed in the neurosciences and all the more so in biological psychiatry. So understandably, you know, biological psychiatrists and psychopharmacologists came to be seen as the enemy by psychoanalysts. And it's hard to overcome those kinds of us and them sort of attitudes. Um, I think a third one is that um, psychoanalytic training has become so demedicalized by which I mean that there's very little medical science in the training and there are very few doctors um, physicians who do psychoanalytic training these days. So it's a very big ask um, of psychoanalysts in, in, in our times uh, to, to, to basically take on board a whole new body of knowledge and a whole new series of methods that they just have no familiarity with. So, you know, what they say about teaching old dogs new tricks, you know, that's another source of the resistance. Um, I think, lastly, that a, a source of resistance also um, resides in the behavior of people who call themselves neuropsychoanalysts who are rather wild. I think there there is one can't take responsibility for what one's colleagues do, but I do think it has to be acknowledged that there's a, there is a lot of wild speculation under the banner of neuropsychoanalysis and a lot of reductionism. And I think that there's a, a, a reasonable and understandable fear that something of the richness and complexity and subtlety of psychoanalysis, the psychological side of uh, you know psychiatry that we've always um, stood for, that something of this will be lost in the process. And I think that that needs to be taken seriously. So that's what it's all about, in my view.
0: Yeah, my experience in reading the book was that it led me into a deeper appreciation and understanding of psycho- psychoanalysis. Um, although I, I did learn a lot about the brain too. But you it really refreshed the vitality of a lot of basic Freudian concepts for me including aspects of the structural model by which I mean the ego and the id, dreams as wish fulfillments, the pleasure principle, and especially the drives. Can you say what neuropsychoanalysis teaches us um, about the drives?
1: Um, uh, Thank you. Before I address your question directly, I want to say two preliminary things which relate to your own uh, preliminary remarks leading up to your question. Um, And that is to say that um, the many people, especially my detractors and and the detractors of neuropsychoanalysis don't realize that I I didn't start out as a psychoanalyst who then sought to neurologize psychoanalysis. Rather, I started out in the behavioral neurosciences and um, I saw what was lacking there and that led me to psychoanalysis. I was trying not to bring neuroscience into psychoanalysis so much as to bring psychoanalysis into neuroscience. And why I'm saying that is because, you know, I want you to understand and and, and uh, the audience to understand that I am a great friend of psychoanalysis. You know, I really, I don't find fault with it. I find, uh, I I feel it's a great enrichment of science and of neuroscience in particular to be able to embrace what psychoanalysis has taught us. And that's why I secondarily trained in psychoanalysis. Um, I also want to point out that in following that path, going from the neurosciences to psychoanalysis, I followed the same path that Freud did. And I think that makes a difference. I think that there are things that you see when you read Freud with the neuroscientific training that you don't see if you lack that training. And so you know, if I may be what might appear to be immodest, I think that there are ways in which I understood Freud that a good many students of Freud don't understand what he's getting at. So many of these things are the topics that you just um, enumerated there. Um, culminating in the concept of drive. I think many of these topics of abstruse uh, sort of theoretical fictions uh, easily left out, and and uh, you know they, they're not the way that psychologically and humanistically trained people think, and they um, I, I therefore come to the, in my view, entirely erroneous. Not only erroneous, I think completely uh, inconceivable. Uh, point of view that we can do without drive theory in psychoanalysis. Um, I, I think that there is a misconception uh, based in this uh, fact, which is that there may be faults. In fact, there are gigantic faults in Freudian drive theory, but that doesn't mean that we can abandon drive theory in general, in principle. Um, there, there, there cannot but be drives in the human uh, mind just as there are in the in the mental functions of all other animals. You know, one of Freud's starting points, perhaps the starting point of psychoanalysis, was that we are, after all, a species. You know, human beings are not exempt from embodiment and from everything that flows from that. You know, the the mind evolves for a reason. Uh, it performs functions, and the essential function of the mind as a whole is to learn how to meet Our needs, our biological needs in the world. That is to say, how to survive and reproduce in an unwelcoming, indifferent environment. You know, we have these needs uh, because we're animals, and the mind registers those needs and then uh, registers the external world and seeks to meet those needs in the world. Now, um, that just applies to every living creature. It therefore has to apply to us, and that's why Freud had a of theory. But um, you know what kind of tools did Freud have for discerning what the fundamental biological drives are at work in the human mind? He had no tools. The only tool that he had was a psychological one, which was the psychoanalytic method. You know, Sitting behind a couch, uh, listening to people's free associations is not the most propitious way about, of going about trying to uh, discover the basic biological forces at work in the human mental apparatus. So the fact that we now have very powerful tools for doing just that, establishing what the basic drives are, um, it it, it makes it not at all surprising that we have uh, have greatly transcended uh, the drive theory that Freud bequeathed us. I want to remind you that in his Beyond the Pleasure Principle in 1920, Freud said something like this, and I'm paraphrasing. He said something like, biology is truly a land of unlimited possibilities. We cannot predict uh, what answers it will give to the questions we have put to it in a few dozen years. They may be of a kind that will blow away the whole artificial fabric of our hypotheses. Now, those few dozen years have passed, and we do have answers to the questions that Freud put to us in biology. What are the basic drives? And the answers that we've come to I'm afraid, do in many respects, blow away the artificial fabric of Freud's hypotheses. And Freud would have been only too happy to have them blown away because he was always highly um, uh, uncertain about the classification of the drives. You know, he, he was very tentative uh, about the, the, his drive theory, but recognized we have to have a drive theory for the reasons that I said at the outset. So what we now have is an understanding based in the most rigorous scientific work of what the basic drives are at work in our minds. And let me remind you that by drives, I mean our needs. What do we need? What are we obliged to? What demands upon the mind to perform work, as Freud put it? What demands are there that we cannot simply cannot escape? To, to to know what those basic demands are, what those basic needs are, is absolutely fundamentally important knowledge for, for anybody practicing psychotherapy or psychoanalysis. These are our emotional needs, because I'll remind you on basic Freudian principles, but also in terms of everything we know in neuroscience today, the way in which we come to know our needs is through feelings, uh, emotional feelings and uh, to understand what the natural kinds are in terms of emotional feeling um is just as i say fundamentally important so um, it would take me a long time to enumerate uh, them for you but we have today um we 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 classify drives in 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 in, in you know their drives which are homeostatic affects, and then they are other affects which are of a sensory kind, uh, sensory affects are like like um, pain and surprise and disgust. Um, drives or homeostatic affects, as we call them, are things like hunger and thirst and the need to sleep. And then the really interesting ones are between these internally directed homeostatic affects and the externally directed sensory ones in between are what we call emotional affects. There are seven of them. And those are the big ticket items in terms of psychopathology. I would go so far as to say that these seven natural kinds of instinctual emotional needs, these are the bedrock upon which we should establish the psychiatric nosology of the future. You know, the DSM as even the authors and editors of the DSM seem to acknowledge increasingly it 's a kind of an embarrassment you know it 's the, these artificial boxes that that we create inventing and, and discarding so called illnesses um, you know every, with every new edition that that whole approach needs to be replaced by a, a psychiatry and a psychoanalysis, both founded on. Uh, what we now know are the basic driving emotional forces uh, in in the mind. And as I say, there's seven of them, but I I could list them for you, but it will take a long time to explain them to you. The list is firstly what's called seeking, or foraging, which is very similar to Freud's broad libidinal concept, except it isn't identical with the second of them, which is sexual instinct lust. Uh, the, those two, uh, there's a confluence between them, but they're not the same. They don't have the same chemistry and the same circuitry, by which I mean anatomy so there's there 's foraging or seeking that 's number one number two there 's lust or, or sexuality in the in the narrower sense of the word number three there's fear anxiety, which is different from a separate form of anxiety which i 'll come to uh, shortly. Number four is rage, which is a hot form of aggression there are various forms of aggression uh, but there's a, the hot type uh, is, an, is an emotional uh, instinctual drive uh, or or, or instinct. Uh, Then there's the second type of anxiety, which is the fifth system, uh, and that is separation anxiety or panic, uh, which is is, um, part of a system for attachment bonding, uh, which is in, in the same system that gives rise to feelings of despair and grief. Panic is a sort of an acute form of what later becomes uh, grief or or despair, the the natural phenotype of depression. Then there's a nurturant instinct, a a sort of maternal uh, care type instinct. And then lastly, which is the really big surprise in the pack, is that there's an instinct for play. We need to play. Juvenile humans, like all mammals, need to play. And it's very interesting to look at um, our clinical material uh, in the light of this, this new knowledge, that there are these seven emotional needs and how they uh, are met or fail to be met um, is, as I said uh, earlier, uh, really at the heart of what causes psychopathology. I like to say our patients suffer mainly from feelings, that is to say from unmet needs from from not finding ways to meet these basic inescapable needs in in the world
0: so maybe we could imagine that the future of the psychoanalytic project is to elaborate upon these seven different instinctual motivation systems just as so like freud modeled how to do that with the libidinal drive which i guess correlates with with the seeking and lust systems of modern neuroscience so going forward the work would be to elaborate the psychic phenomena that corresponds to all these other instinctual drives, too, is that right?
1: Yes, I very much um, believe that uh, I want to say that um, you said earlier that when you read this book that we are discussing that you you, you found it was of value to your clinical work. I want to say that the history of um of this uh, this development, the neuropsychoanalytic development, it started out as pure science. you know we were just trying to learn what are the brain correlates of basic psychoanalytic concepts and vice versa you know what are the psychoanalytical what what, what is the affective and psychodynamic aspects of the neurocognitive things that we were learning in order to create a more complete uh, approach to the mind. It was basic science, it wasn't applied science. But I always knew and and hoped and expected that eventually what we were learning would be of clinical relevance because obviously to the extent that you have a better theory, a better understanding of how the mind works in health and disease, then it can only um, have implications for the application of that theory um, in our clinical work. As I've said, I think, uh, I strongly believe that that applies both to psychopharmacology and to psychoanalysis. The better we understand how the thing works, the better we can treat it. But I also believe that um, psychoanalysis, um, well, let me put it this way around. Neuroscience can never be the final court of appeal for psychoanalysis. It gives us knowledge, which we then have to apply in our own clinical situation. And so for that reason, what I've done um, is after we um, rejigged uh, a Freudian drive theory in terms of what has subsequently been learned um, about these basic motivational forces in the mind, my, my, for me, the next step was to start a, a study group, which I've now been at doing it for, I think, nearly 10 years, where what, what I did with the group of about 20 colleagues um, was to meet on a regular basis and for us to consider cases in the ordinary way, that is to say, members of the group presented their clinical cases in the way that we normally do you know with the, the history of the, of the, the, the patient's life, uh, then a history of the presented complaint and of the treatment, and then a couple of sessions uh, uh, presented verbatim. And we listened to these cases through the lens of this new drive theory in order to discern in what way do we see the patient differently? Um, In what way do we understand the the, the nature of the patient's uh, difficulties um, afresh? And most importantly, what are the implications of this new understanding for what we're going to do about it? How does it affect what we actually do therapeutically? And, um, the, the the I can say now on the basis of as 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 i've told you nearly ten years of work in this um, in this direction, that there most certainly are new things that you see um you know it it's really has uh, the, for me the proof has been in the pudding um, and that all of us in that group are of the same view that it really has benefited our clinical work that we understand much better and much more simply you know i say it brings clarity. Um, to uh, what is, after all, a very, very complex thicket, you know, to try to make sense of any human life um, is no simple matter. To have any new tools to be able to to enable us to do this um, more lucidly uh, is certainly very welcome. Now, on the basis of that work, I have started, uh, only this year, I've started to um, to deliver workshops to groups of colleagues who are interested and uh, happily there are many interested uh, all over the place so i'm going to be doing a lot more travelling but i've been because it's a kind of thing you can't do just in a scientific article uh, or even in a book you know you really need to sit with colleagues and to talk them through it and to listen to their clinical experiences and present your own to them uh, in a kind of hands-on practical way and so that's the way Forwards for me at this point in time is I'm wanting to show my colleagues to discuss with them uh, how this new drive theory and uh, what fundamental implications it has for how we go about doing our work
0: that that makes me think about the the future of psychoanalytic training and training institutes and their curriculum. I hadn't really thought to ask you about that, but it's it's coming to mind as uh, as your the burgeoning interest and really impact of your theories. Um, But let me ask you something more fundamental. Can you differentiate between three fields of study? What is neuroscience? What is neuropsychology? And what is neuropsychoanalysis? Can you say something about that?
1: Yes, certainly I can. So um, first of all, you must remember that these words are, are, are used differently by different people and um so what i'm saying to you is not um what everybody else would necessarily say but i'll i'll, I'll try to uh, be as um inclusive as i can neuroscience on the one hand is the is the um the broadest of the three terms you've mentioned it's the most inclusive of the three terms but um i think that the way it's generally applied uh, is is to refer more to bench neuroscience in other words to to basic science in a laboratory setting where you're dealing with the the minutiae you know right down to the molecular level uh, the single cell level the, the individual the neuron uh, and, and neural circuit level and a lot of neuroscience Um, Because of the kinds of techniques that they use studying things at at, at such a basic level, a lot of neuroscience, the bulk of it, involves animal work, research with animals. Neuropsychology, uh, as the name implies, uh, refers more not just to how the thing works in terms of its basic anatomy and physiology, uh, but uh, but in terms of at more at a systems level uh, and in relation to psychological functions in particular. So that's, in, neu- neuropsychology includes, and in fact is dominated uh, much more by work with human beings than work with animals. And it's, uh, the emphasis is not on the basic physiology and anatomy, but rather on the functional systems level in relation to mental functions. Now, leading up to distinguishing between um, neuropsychology and neuropsychoanalysis, I have to say that the way that the word mental is applied in neuropsychology is not the way in which it's used in psychoanalysis. Mental in neuropsychology means something like information processing, you know, and, and it means cognition um, as opposed to affect, and it means behavior as opposed to subjective experience. You know so although subjective experience and affect um, are not excluded in neuropsychology the emphasis falls very much more on a kind of third person information processing account of cognition uh, of, 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 of uh, on the model of uh, cognitive processing being something like information processing the mind being something like a digital computer um, and the kinds of things that are, the kinds of methods that are used um, give a, a privileged place to behavioral observations and uh, and greatly, um, uh, uh, I would go so far as to say, it can neglect, if not ignore, the subjective experience. It's it's sort of eschewed, you know, but subjectivity is not something that's, Um, uh, one wants to do science on one wants to be objective and subjective factors must be excluded so where neuropsychoanalysis comes in is that it's quite the opposite we our starting point in neuropsychoanalysis is that there is this uh, uncomfortable fact that it may be for natural scientists nevertheless part of nature is subjective experience you know that is the essence of the mind the mind is first and foremost something that you experience um, and you can only directly observe your own, uh, but, uh, difficulty is that might make it to do science. Um, nevertheless, there are perspectives you can gain on how the mind works from a subjective point of view that you simply cannot gain any other way. You know, for example, feelings can only ever be felt. You know, if you, you can't see a feeling, you, you might see the neurochemistry, which is the neural correlate of or the neural mechanism of feeling. But, you know, feelings as subjective states uh, you know, really need to be experienced in order for you to understand what enormous motivational power they have. To say the patient killed him or herself because they couldn't stand the feeling any longer um, is, is to illustrate what causal power feelings have. You know, to say the patient killed him or herself because they lacked serotonin, it just doesn't cut it. You know, what do you mean they killed themselves because they lacked it? it? wasn't because of serotonin, it was because they couldn't stand it. You know, so you will never understand how this part of nature works, how the mind works, if you don't take account of subjective factors, so neuropsychoanalysis seeks in the first instance, and I go back to what I said to you earlier about how it developed in relation to my own uh, uh, professional uh, life. It, it starts out firstly trying to bring the subjective perspective into neuropsychology and via neuropsychology into neuroscience as a whole. You know, what can we, how can we better understand how the mental apparatus works uh, f- by taking seriously what can be learned about it from the point of view of subjectivity. is psychoanalysis's unique contribution to the neurosciences. Um, as I said, secondarily, uh, psychoanalysis gains at the same time uh, by having more objective, powerful, rigorous scientific methods to bring to bear on our theory-making. But... Um, There you have it. That's how I would define and distinguish those three um, fields that you asked about.
0: So would it be fair to say that over the past 60 or 70 years, there's been this big shift in the psychological sciences away from behaviorism towards cognitive science and then nowadays towards affective neuroscience? And if this is the case, are these shifting winds favorable to the fortunes of psychoanalysis?
1: Oh, I agree with that completely, um, that that change of winds is occurring and that that change is very favorable for psychoanalysis. Um, I think that um, one way of putting it or looking upon it is that neuroscience needed, first of all, to solve lots of tiny peppercorn problems before it could grapple with the bigger, more complex questions. So, you know, looking at the single cell and looking at, you know, at, 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 at uh, neural functioning at the level of very reductionistic, uh, what very reductionistic methods are capable of, uh, of, uh, uh, resolving, uh, was n- necessarily what came first. But once those simpler issues were resolved, then it became not only possible, but exciting to start looking at the bigger questions. So it's only in recent years, by which I mean the last 20 years or so, that, ne- that the neurosciences, in the broader sense of the word, um, are beginning to grapple with questions like what makes us tick, really? You know, what are the basic motivational forces? What is a self? What is consciousness? What is it for? You know, what about emotion? Uh, where does this fit in? So, this is when psychoanalysis comes into its own. Everything that we 've been grappling with for the last hundred years and more. all the conceptual uh, uh, the, the, the language uh, and the methods we've developed for dealing with all the subtleties of subjectivity suddenly are you know neuroscience is hungry for this. And that's why Eric Kandel played such an important part in saying, look, chaps, to his neuroscientific colleagues, psychoanalysis is where we have to go if we want to find um, approaches uh, to the questions that are now coming into view in neuroscience. It's really a golden age in neuroscience. But I, I want to answer your question also from a different point of view. It is certainly true that behaviorism was replaced by cognitive science and that cognitive science is now being supplemented by affective neuroscience and 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 via affective neuroscience uh, psychoanalysis uh, uh, provides this this incredibly uh, rich set of opportunities that is true but i also want to point out that there's a generational aspect to all of this when behaviorism fell from grace in the 70s uh, and thereabouts um the, the behaviorists didn't all just pack up shop and and you know resign They what they did was they morphed from being behaviorists into being neuroscientists and uh, so cognitive neuroscience which now allows us you know, remember in behaviorism the mind was a black box and you weren't allowed to look into it you know you only were permitted to speak of the stimuli and the responses the external observables um now that we have the tools to observe what's going on inside the brain directly behaviorists have have morphed into have reinvented themselves as cognitive neuroscientists but the essential point of looking at the mind from the outside looking at the mind as if it were an organ as if it were a mechanism as if it were something that can be studied Uh, entirely uh, in the same way as one would study any other bodily organ or any other information processing machine, um, is absolutely fundamental to the way that they went about it. So affect and and the subjective side of the mind was still completely neglected. Uh, From the 70s to the 80s to the 90s, it was really only by the end of the 90s, that uh, we, we had achieved enough, and people had started dying off enough, you know, for uh, uh, for, for for a younger generation uh, of neuroscientists uh, to take seriously the affective and the subjective side of things, and so this change of winds that you're talking about uh, is also a generational, an intergenerational transition that those who uh, who dominated cognitive neuroscience in the last decades of the 20th century were in their heart of hearts still really behaviorists and uh, it's only now in the uh, with the turn of the century and into our own century that that baggage is finally being shed and uh, that we now we now truly have um, the opportunity to have a psychodynamic neuroscience to have a, a neuroscience which takes seriously the affective side and the subjective side um, of, um, of our field. And I say again, you know, that's the heart of the matter. The brain, of course, it is just like any other bodily organ in one sense. But the most important distinguishing feature of the brain is that it feels like something to be a brain. Only the brain has subjectivity. And surely it's there for a reason. And you will never understand how that part of nature works unless you take account of the subjectivity of it. And that's, that's our stomping ground. That's psychoanalysis. That's what we
0: do. So speaking of what we do with our patients, what would you say that we're really trying to accomplish? You know, some people say that we're trying to help our patients discover the truth about their lives. But if you ask them, well, what, what do you mean the truth? They'll say, well, the, the emotional truth. But how would you say? How would you describe what we're doing as psychoanalysts in the in the consulting room?
1: I'll I'll answer that question in two ways. Firstly, to say that um, I think that the the idea that we're trying to find the truth. Um and then the whole sort of hermeneutic story that goes with that you know that the, there's my truth there's your truth uh, you know what, what what counts as truth if you're speaking about it from a purely subjective point of view as opposed to objective facts uh, which is you know again straddling the dichotomy that we're talking about i, I don't think that in any in, in some sort of broad um philosophical way or existential way the aim of psychoanalysis is to find the truth I think that what that phrase uh, or that mindset alludes to, which I think is valid, is that uh, we seek to face facts um I think that what you could say that psychoanalysis is a, a, a that the technique of psychoanalysis is an accumulated set of um of wisdoms, as it were, of 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 clinical experience of what to do, what works and what doesn't work in helping people to face the facts of their lives, um, which uh, especially the unwelcome facts, you know, there, there are many things which are there inside of us and around us, past and present, that we would rather were not there. Um, and if you don't take account of those things, Uh, because you don't want to, uh, that's not going to make them not be there. And so, therefore, to the extent that you don't take account of what actually exists, to that extent, you're going to bang into it uh, in unprepared uh, and unhappy ways. So in this business of truth, that's how I look upon it. I think that it's a matter, it's a question of the the clinical, uh, uh, the goal of psychoanalysis from that point of view is helping people to face facts, especially unwelcome ones, because we have to you because you can 't avoid facts if they 're there you 'll bang into them um, whether you whether you want them to be there or not, so it 's better to not bang into them but rather to incorporate them into your strategy as it were as to how you 're going to go about seeking to meet your needs in the world now that 's my second way of answering your question. I think that the aim of psychoanalysis is to help our patients have to meet their needs in the world, which goes back to your question about drives. We, all of us, have needs. And uh, those needs cannot be narcissistically um, over, overcome. You know, you can't, if I can just use the analogy of hunger, which is of course not a psychological need, but to, just by way of analogy, you know, we all have hunger, which is a feeling. Uh, the reason we have hunger is because we have you know, nutritional needs that uh, have to be met and you cannot meet those needs except by going out into the world and engaging with it and doing the work and learning how things function in such a way as to be able to meet your needs out there. That's why life is difficult. Now, the same applies to our emotional needs. I spoke of what those were earlier. Things like attachment needs, the need to not feel in danger, need to not feel you losing those who you love, you know, needs of that kind, or the, of, of being able to get rid of frustrations, of things that stand in your way, and so on. These are the basic uh, the driving forces that I enumerated for you earlier. And to the extent that, we, that those needs are inescapable, and to the extent that we've how to meet them, uh, another way of putting it is that's uh, learning how to manage emotion. It's emotion regulation. To the extent that you actually meet your needs in the world, to that extent, you manage your feelings. To the extent that you don't, you suffer from feelings. And so our patients come to us. They don't say, doctor, there's something I'm unconscious of. Can you please tell me what it is? They say, you know, doctor, I've got this feeling that I can't stand. I, I, I can't cope with this. Uh, can you please take it away? Now, there are two ways in which you can respond to that question. Either psychopharmacologically. You can say, yes, of course, uh, I'll take two of these you know, and see me in the morning. Uh, that will take your feeling away. That's symptomatic treatment. Uh, and the other way of doing it is, is to say your feelings mean something you know if you if if you're feeling panicky, that means that something that matters to you that you fear you get to lose or that you feel you are losing, we need to understand what that is because whatever it is you're doing about it isn't working now of course those are not the actual words we use, but that's the message we convey. That that if you want to get rid of this feeling, you need to understand it. You need to know what is, what's causing it. That is to say, what are you doing in the world that isn't actually fitting the bill, that isn't hitting the mark? Because we need to know what that thing is and where it comes from so that you can do it differently. And I think that's what psychoanalysis is all about. Now, you might notice in the way I phrased it that there's no radical distinction there between psychoanalysis and any other form of psychotherapy. A cognitive behavioral therapist would say, well, that's what we do. And so there I would add one important qualification, which is that, uh, yes, there are things that we do in in our lives which are designed to meet our needs, in other words, to manage our feelings. Um, And uh, all psychotherapies are designed to find better ways of meeting your needs. But there are a large number of the things that we do of that kind that we don't even know we're doing that are deeply automatized, unconscious to use the language of cognitive neuroscience, non-declarative, which means non-declarable. You know, the things that you can't just work out rationally with a cognitive behavioral therapist, the things that need to be analyzed uh, using methods that we've developed for how do you get to those things that you can't think about that you're nevertheless doing, that you can't see that you're doing. That's where the psychoanalytical approach comes into its own. And as you know, the main focus there is transference. In other words, what are you repeating uh, rather uh, than knowing uh, that you're doing consciously? What are you doing unconsciously? And uh, a- a- analysis of transference in the broader sense of the word is the way that we go about doing it. So it's a very long, wi- windy way of uh, of answering your question. But basically, what I think we're doing in psychoanalysis is helping our patients to find better ways to meet their needs. In other words, better ways to manage their feelings. And we specialize in helping them to change the things that they do that they don't know and can't know that they're doing using the specialist techniques that we've evolved over these decades.
0: Yeah, and that's why the world needs psychoanalysts to, to help people discover their non-declarables that are holding them back. So, but we're winding down and I wanted to mention one chapter that really captured my attention, the, the chapter about the hard, hard problem of consciousness. And I know that's a huge issue that stumped, great thinkers for centuries but if i'm not mistaken when i finished reading the chapter it occurred to me huh did he solve the hard problem of consciousness and if so isn't that kind of nobel prize territory and i don't know maybe it's a matter of how you define the terms but it did seem like a really significant um thing you'd done in that chapter am i right about that
1: yeah, yes, I, I, I want to say, first of all, you're right. I could talk for an hour on that. And sadly, my personality is such that I can probably talk on, for an hour on any thing that you ask me about. Um, but uh, the, the, th- this issue that you've just touched on, you know, th- as you can well imagine, is the thing that I am most excited about at, at this point uh, in, in this juncture in my life. I think that, uh, you know, I really think that I've made an important breakthrough there conceptually and I want to say one thing about that before going on to the, the second thing conceptually what what has what enabled me to make that breakthrough derives from the fact that I've trained in psychoanalysis because, and with it, from everything we've been discussing namely recognizing that consciousness is fundamentally affect it's felt uh, the approach of my colleagues has been too much on cognitive consciousness um, and not sufficiently on affective consciousness, and I think that led them down a different sort of path. Once you take the perspective that the fundamental raw ingredient of consciousness is feeling, uh, that leads you to a very different way of looking upon the hard problem. Uh, that secondly, and lastly, I want to say that as, as, as pleased as I am with the um conceptual or theoretical or philosophical if you will breakthrough that um, that that uh, chapter that you're referring to um, uh, is about uh, the the this, the next thing you have to do is to test those theories i mean this is of the essence of what distinguishes neuropsychoanalysis from other schools of thought in psychoanalysis this is not just a new language or you know an, an, a new theory it's an, it's a it's an opportunity to Base our theory making on, 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 on different foundations. That is to say to use the tools of neuroscience to, to test our predictions arising from our new theoretical formulations. So the, these neuroscientific words that we're using are not just words. They are terms which refer to materially observable things, which can be experimentally tested, you know, in the, in, in the ordinary natural, not scientific uh, ways. So for me, the the next step, um, after formulating the hard problem in the way that I have uh, is to test the conclusions that I've come to. And I'm really excited about that. So I'm going to be working closely with Christina Alberini at NYU um, on a series of experiments in which we we seek to demonstrate the veracity of the of the conceptual uh, breakthrough that that is um, that is um, described in the chapter that you refer to, and uh, if those results pan out, then uh, I, I will uh, I, 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 I will th- think that the high praise that you just heaped on me will be will be deserved.
0: Aha! Uh-huh. So then my intuition was right that there was something possibly historic about that chapter for for the history of consciousness studies. But for my last question, are you working on any new books? And and what is this revised edition of the complete works of Sigmund Freud? Why is that necessary and what's that all about?
1: Okay, well I'll answer both of those questions. Uh, firstly, yes, there is a new book that I'm working on and I'm I'm going to be focusing on it as soon as I finish the standard edition. Um, and that is next year. The book I'm going to be working on next year, I already know what its title is. It's called Consciousness Itself. Um, and uh, it's got two parts. The first is is basic science. And that, that's uh, the title of that part is, In the Beginning Was the Affect. Uh, and the second part uh, is the clinical part, which is uh, the title of which, uh, this, the heading of which is "Our Patients Suffer Mainly from Feelings." So that's everything we've been talking about in, in much of this conversation. You know, is going to be set out in I hope a, a clear and accessible way in that book, "Consciousness Itself," which I'll write next year. Uh, what's keeping me from doing that is that I'm putting the finishing touches to the the collected Freud works. And you ask, how did that come about? Well, actually, I started with me translating Freud's untranslated neuroscientific writings, of which there are a great many. People don't realize, you know, Freud did was was a was a very productive neuroscientist for more than 20 years, and and he, during that time he published literally hundreds of papers, including several monographs. So, and the vast majority, vast 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 majority of which were never translated. So I translated all of those and was busy sort of uh, writing the editorial apparatus for it When, in four volumes. When I was approached by the publishers of the standard edition, uh, who had decided they wanted to revise Strachey's translation, that there was too much criticism of the old translation. And, you know, there were, there were all manner of uh, publishing houses and editors who were talking about bringing out a new translation. So they wanted to revise the authorized translation. So I then was distracted from the thing I was actually interested in, which was Freud's neuroscientific works. Um, by this, I mean, when I say distracted, I don't mean to imply that I wasn't only too happy to do it. I was I was delighted to do it, uh, but I didn't quite realize what I was taking on. It was an enormous task, enormous task to revise the whole 24 volumes of, you know, stretchy standard edition. So because I'm also not able to do it full time, you know, I have many other things that I'm doing. It's taken me over 10 years to complete that. But now I have completed it. I went on a sabbatical last year to Chicago University, and there I was able to finish it. What I'm doing now is indexing bibliographies, proofreading, stuff like that. And it will be, it'll come out, if not at the end of this year, certainly the very beginning of next year, 2018. Um, that is to say, the, st- the revised standard edition, the 24 volumes. Then I can f- finally go back to the four <laughs> volumes that I started with and bring out the complete neuroscientific works of it. That I think will be out uh, perhaps the end of 2018, maybe maybe as late as 2019. But alongside that, I'm going to be writing this other book, which is really uh, where my own um, my own pa- passionate intentionality lies at the moment. I can't wait to get my teeth into that.
0: So as my analyst always says to me at the end of the hour, we're out of time. And I want to thank you very much from all of us here at the New Books Network for taking your time to talk to us about this important book. Thank you. We've been interviewing Dr. Mark Solms about his book, The Feeling Brain, Next week, I will be interviewing Dr. Annie Reiner from Los Angeles about her book, Beyond and Being, which will give us the chance to approach psychoanalysis from a completely different angle, namely Wilfred Bion's concept of O. I hope you will join us again for our next interview here on the New Books in Psychoanalysis webcast.